This is the Executive Dad Podcast. Executive Dad helps working fathers, their families, and their employers to understand what's preventing men from feeling fully fulfilled at home and at work. Executive Dad helps men balance their own needs with what their families and organizations need. Executive Dad builds community. I'm Kenyatta Meadows, and you are essential. Thank you for sharing this podcast and subscribing. In this episode, we'll discuss what I learned from meeting Dave Chappelle. I'll answer the question of credibility, in other words, why me, as a follow-up to episode one. We'll discuss my initial perspective on paternity leave, along with the phone call that changed everything. Also, what I learned from my recent conversation with a well-known CEO. Now, that's a lot of I and my and me in there, but I promise that it's really all about you and some very specific takeaways that can make your lives and outlook much better and that your teams at work and at home are going to thank you for both in the short and long term. But first, let me tell you about the time I met Dave Chappelle. When I met Dave Chappelle a few years ago, The Roots had just finished a concert in Bryant Park in New York City. I didn't actually go myself, but decided to meet up with a friend of mine who had along with a childhood friend of hers who was visiting from Australia. I knew of a quiet hotel bar off the beaten path just south of the park that I think used to be a wine cellar. They made good drinks, and it would be a very convenient place for us to meet. When we arrived, the place was even more empty than I expected, which for me wasn't at all a problem. We found a table, got some service, and chatted a bit. Shortly after getting settled, Dave Chappelle walked in with a small group of people. I took note, but didn't pay too close attention, and very soon stopped paying attention to them at all. Eventually, as often happens when one has been drinking anything, nature called, so I got up and headed to the appropriate place. This wasn't one of those ultra-modern places today where men and women use the same bathroom. For men, that's me, I'd have to turn left. For women, they'd have to turn right. But if you're Dave Chappelle, looking at your phone, seated on a stool randomly by the bathroom doors, you're seated kind of in the middle, but a little bit to the right. That's not to say anything about Dave Chappelle, other than he seemed to be almost guarding the women's door. He actually appeared to be waiting for who I believed to be his wife. Anyway, the real point is that it might have been awkward if I just walked right past him without saying anything at all, just on a human-to-human level, since we were the only two people within 20 feet not counting whomever was behind the door he was guarding. I also couldn't really pretend that I didn't know who he was, even if he didn't know who I was, so I felt pretty much obligated to say hi, because who just walks past someone they know? So I said, hey, how's it going? To which he replied verbatim, hey brother, how are you? In that super friendly Dave Chappelle voice. I remember what he said, but I don't remember what I said in response. Maybe nothing, because maybe he wasn't really asking me a question as he continued to look at his phone. So moments later, as I stood there, staring at the wall just a few inches from my face, I wondered whether, when I went back outside, I should tell him about the other time that I saw him a few years before that. It was at the corner of 18th and California in Denver at around 8am. I was on my way to work and waiting to cross the street when I saw him drive by in a maroon Range Rover. He must have noticed the confusion on my face because I was pretty sure that was Dave Chappelle, but... What would Dave Chappelle be doing driving around the streets of Denver in a maroon Range Rover at 8 in the morning, which I'm pretty sure is the normal bedtime for a comedian, especially a superstar. Anyway, we made eye contact then and he nodded at me. 
I think I nodded back, but probably after the fact. That may have been the highlight of my day that day, but I'm not sure. Anyway, I figured that would be a pretty stupid story to tell someone, especially someone who makes an extremely good living telling good stories. But I decided, I'm going to tell him anyway. And as soon as I came out, I saw that he was no longer guarding the door, but was instead about 10 feet away at the bar. So I went up to the bar to grab a drink, which was my primary reason for being in this near-empty wine cellar in the first place, and I told him my story, which seemed even less spectacular when I said it out loud. He was very cool about it, but I don't recall what he said afterwards or what I said afterwards, but I felt perfectly fine in that moment. My drink finally showed up, and we quickly said farewell in about as much time as it had taken me to tell my not-really-a-story. I sat back down with my friend and her friend and hung out for maybe another 15-20 minutes when Dave and his people started to head towards the door. They stopped and gathered themselves for a minute, and as he looked around, he saw me. Then he jerked his head up in that, ah, I knew I forgot something, kind of way, came over to the table, not all the way, but close enough to be clear that he was deliberately coming towards us, towards me actually, and then he put his hands together in front of him and kind of bowed to say goodbye. I thought that was cool. I thought that was very cool. I don't remember saying or doing anything in particular until the next day when I texted my college buddy Aditya, who used to watch Chappelle's show with me religiously on weekends many years before. And I said, you will never guess who I ran into last night. And then I told him the story. I especially emphasized the part about how he made a point to come back to say goodbye. But then, because I think I was feeling a little bit too excited about it, and yes, there's probably a lot in that statement about the way men handle emotions, I said, well, he probably does that with everyone, and it's probably something that he's rehearsed. And then Aditya said to me, even if that's true, that is what he has chosen to rehearse. In the last episode, I told you that I would answer an implied question, one that I'd stated actually. What gives me the credibility to do this podcast with the kinds of ambitions that I mentioned in the introduction. I'll walk you through some of the customary attributes that will hopefully provide the background, after which we can get back to the good stuff. So, my first valuable life lessons in education happened in the Bahamas, which is where I'm from, and I stayed there through my sophomore year of university. I got an advanced degree in accounting from the University of Denver, then worked at a big four accounting firm for five years that gave me exposure to dozens of companies across industries. I then spent another five years at a telecom Fortune 200 company. For most of those 10 years, I also sat on a board of directors for a federally funded organ procurement and transplantation organization, where I also served as secretary and treasurer in addition to being on the audit committee. In that same period, I spent a little time lecturing graduate business students about fraud examination. I started a short-lived company, actually in the Ukraine of all places, with Aditya, the college friend I just mentioned. I've consulted and have worked for a couple of the largest, most recognized firms on Wall Street, and in more recent years, at the executive level. I've even also published a book of poetry called A Float Atop a Marble Sea. And yes, I am also a new father. The purpose of recounting all that is not to pointlessly talk about myself, but to share that having worked in a number of high-stress and very competitive environments, I know the struggle, and that the struggle is very real. I know that perceptions of minor things can have major and lasting impacts, and we'll actually talk about that in an upcoming episode. I know politics, and codes, and corporate speak. 
I know that as we think about and try to address work pressures and balance those with family life, we still have a responsibility to carve out time for ourselves and for our own personal growth and development. Essentially, the three pillars of executive dad, home life, work life, and self. I also know that that is extremely difficult to do, and sometimes to even want to do. So as we go on this journey together and explore ideas in this podcast, challenging assumptions on each other, and breaking out of the molds and habits that other people have placed on us, we'll have a baseline, and you'll have a much better idea about where I'm coming from. But more than that, over the last 20 years, I've gotten to hear a lot about and to observe the inner workings of hundreds of families and partnerships from the vantage point of shared offices, classroom, the boardroom, and the break room, over cube walls, in elevators and in hallways, in airplanes, at conferences, and on business trips. Like you, I've gotten to see my teammates, partners, clients, fellow board members, and friends at their best and at their worst, not only as it relates to work, but as it relates to family and self. We have with our coworkers a kind of camaraderie and connection that our families and partners may not understand, may not be able to understand. Not too long ago, I posted an article on LinkedIn entitled, A Mirror, A Clock, and an Inside Joke, which speaks to how and why our relationship with our colleagues are often so special and strong. I'll add a link to the article in the episode notes. But it's this same connection that may at times cause us to overvalue certain opinions of people at work and to honor the culture at all costs, even when it comes into conflict with what might otherwise be best for us and our families, especially in the longer term. It's important to note that there may be absolutely nothing wrong with those opinions or the culture, but it may be our own feelings around what constitutes loyalty and sufficiency and excellence in our performance and advancement that creates internal conflict or leads to conflict with others in our personal lives. I've gotten to see a lot of that over the years, or have had to see it, from both men and women who have needlessly sacrificed their health, their relationships, and even critical time and moments with their children to perform entirely forgettable pieces of work to satisfy unsatisfiable clients and unreasonable bosses in pursuit of promotions and raises never received or that came in their own time anyway. While the insignificance of that work may have become more clear in retrospect, most of us have enough experience, certainly at this point, to figure out what truly matters and what doesn't, and to have conversations with managers and peers and teams and mentors and mentees and sponsors to be able to decide and to properly balance our respective lives at home and work. We also need better conversations at home. What we need more of isn't knowledge, but desire, the confidence, and the willpower to actively balance our lives. We need practice. Still, it's easier said than done, and having an academic conversation about it is far different than the emotions around it, specifically fear of various kinds that lead us to think that we are somehow the exception, or that normally we would definitely do it but this time or this project is different. That maybe no one understands what we're going through and why we can't find balance. So what's been my thinking on balance, specifically taking paternity leave, and how has that changed in recent times? How has that contributed to establishing Executive Dad? 
My current organization provides a very generous and probably leading benefit to parents, fathers especially. I never had reason to pay attention to the details, but I'd always respected it as one of the many benefits of working here. Having said that, I also always assumed that anyone who would take all of the paternity leave offered was probably junior enough in their responsibilities or already had their trust fund all figured out. They had already hit their number. Maybe they had arrived at whatever level they intended to achieve at the firm or that they weren't that far off and were in no particular rush to get there. Fair. But as for me, someone without a trust fund, and as someone with ambitions and a desire to live up to his so-called full potential, whatever that is, how could I be gone for weeks, even months at a time? It's not that I thought that work couldn't go on without me. Oh, I'm sure it can, and would, and someday will. But it was more about why should I expect to be given more responsibility and to get better recognition if I'm absent for months out of the year? Also, while being deprived of sleep by a crying baby feels life-changing and is to some extent, my general belief was that fathers aren't the ones who've gone through the physical trauma of birth and its after-effects, the emotional effects. Yes, they absolutely need to be around to help, to do some shopping and schedule visits, to acclimate themselves, to learn and to bond during this critical time, to provide emotional support, all of the very human kinds of things surrounding a birth changing diapers, of course. But what about the cost of being gone and all the other things that also benefit the family that are rooted in tangible, not emotional things? How do we maintain relationships and stay relevant at work? Being gone doesn't only impact the period of time you aren't in the office. There may be multi-year projects or other high-profile pieces of work that could just as easily go to someone else who will be there for the ramp-up and the kickoff, who will move things along while you're gone, but who will provide consistency even after you come back. And all of that would have been yours. What about the sense of commitment and camaraderie I spoke about earlier? What would the best of our colleagues do in situations like this? Well, I was very fortunate to have that made clear to me in one very important phone call. One Thursday evening, I had a call to catch up with a former manager who was known for her work ethic and positive demeanor in the face of pretty consistent and high pressure. She definitely knows the struggle. I've learned a lot from working with her and observing the way she operates. I shared the baby news with her, which till then I hadn't really felt the need to share more broadly, given that I am actually an extremely private person, podcast notwithstanding. It also wasn't really coming up in casual conversation because my colleagues and I were all still working from home. Though to be fair, most people won't just randomly ask you if you've just recently had a baby. They do kind of rely on you to bring that up. Anyway, when I told her, she was surprised because while she didn't know that I had taken almost two weeks of vacation around my daughter's birth, she did know that I hadn't used any meaningful portion of my firm's generous benefit related to family leave apparently not to be outdone by my surprise, she really surprised me by strongly encouraging me to take the time, all of it, and was a sounding board for some of my honest concerns, as have been others at all levels. I recall that when I hung up at the end of that conversation, I felt a weight come off my shoulders that I didn't even know was there before. As I stood up, I felt lifted up. That's what mentorship feels like, and that's what leadership is like. 
I had been reminded that a career is a long game and that self-care was critical and that life outside of work really matters, which I already knew and was kind of doing, but what I was also doing was burning the candle at both ends without even fully realizing it. And that's partly because I love a challenge. I respond well to pressure, and at times of greatest need, I'm happy to be the one people call, and I can be the first one in and the last one out, working at a high standard all the way in between. But that isn't sustainable, especially not with a new baby. While she never said any of that, our call reminded me of all of that, and I've continued to receive positive responses from my colleagues, just as I've continued to reflect on the importance of that very pivotal call. But beyond that, beyond myself, in order to actually be the kind of leader and mentor I consider myself to be, I had to also reconcile my support for parents on my team and elsewhere, both working mothers as well as fathers, with actually modeling the right behavior, which is not to breathlessly and endlessly work to exhaustion and at the expense of all else, especially or including the self. I've worked in plenty of cultures where people bragged about how much they worked. I've worked many hundred-hour weeks myself, and while those can often be avoided with better planning and more realistic objectives, sometimes they really just are necessary. But successful lives and careers are a long game, and long games require better-than-average planning, strategic periods of rest, recalibration, and refocus on the things that matter most and that are irreplaceable. All of this is helped at work by good policy, but also good role models. People who recognize that mentorship is not only about what you say. When we don't take leave or support it, we strip the company culture of something. We make the company's cultural aspirations and the cultural realities forever irreconcilable. Frankly, to not take my full paternity leave would not just rob my family and myself of that time, but would deprive my colleagues of something. In fact, many things. I would deprive them of another way of viewing dedication, what I'm calling three-pillar dedication, not just to work, but to my family and to myself. I hope that it models trust in others and their support to keep things moving in my absence and the humility that clearly communicates that I am not irreplaceable at work and that I don't think that I am. It also gives other people an opportunity to shine. Even more close to home, I have to keep in mind what habits my child will witness. If I'm not willing to change now, when will I be? If I don't institute and practice those smaller disciplines, when would I have the discipline to practice what I preach? Because I think about what future conversations with her will be like when she asks me for advice on balance in the coming years, or even just how special I treated her birth and how I felt about it, and did I make her a priority in my life from the very beginning. Love is about doing, not just being. And being in a profession where evidence matters a lot more than what people say, I want to have something to point to, something that doesn't have to be extrapolated, deduced, or heavily explained. I need evidence that stands alone. Taking leave by itself isn't enough, of course, but it does provide the opportunity and freedom to do the things that matter most and the ability to make early and lasting memories. And even time to properly evaluate how my own life and needs have changed and to set up frameworks to manage it all. Some of the smartest people in the world famously take weeks, even months, just to read and think and plan out their year. And there is no reason that at least some part of parental leave 
can't be used this way for working fathers. But we also need to re-emphasize the same to a lot of working women, especially the very ambitious ones and many who are in leadership positions today. By itself, promoting more women into senior management will not solve problems around child care and balance, because many of them have adopted the historical thinking of the executive man. And frankly, they often had little choice if they were to have any chance of excelling in male-dominated environments. But as they continue with their leadership, and as new leaders emerge, these ideas about balance and proper modeling should continue to be discussed and challenged, and those positions of leadership should continue to be leveraged to enact those kinds of changes. Speaking of leadership, I recently spoke to a very well-known CEO of an extremely well-known organization. There were a number of technical questions about the organization or external environment that I could have asked, or I could have asked him to try to predict the future, because so many questions asked of CEOs really just boil down to that. Instead, I asked him, if you had a newborn today, how much family leave would you take, and how would you think about managing your responsibilities in the interim? Now, let me be clear. That's not the kind of question you ask if you're trying to make yourself sound smart because it definitely doesn't do that. It's the kind of question you might ask if you had no idea how things actually worked, or what a CEO actually does, and what it truly means to be on call. Fortunately, he already knew my background and professional responsibilities. But knowing what I know, what kind of response could I have seriously expected to get? It's not like he would give me advice that contradicted policy or law, or that might be too controversial. Knowing that, how would I evaluate his response? Well, communication tends to be broken out into what is verbal, tonal, facial, etc. So there are a lot of different ways to say the exact same thing. And you can say the exact same thing, but mean it in totally different ways. In short, I obviously wanted to hear what he would say, but I was curious about how he would say it and for how long would he engage with me on it. I will also say that this person has a strong reputation for decency and emphasizing doing what's right, so that limited the range of what I expected to hear in a favorable way. Regardless, you just never know. Without delving into full details, I can say that without skipping a beat, he said that people absolutely should take the leave, that senior leadership and peers should do their best to support colleagues at these critical times in their lives. And he shared a little bit about what it was like earlier in his career and life. He engaged fully and left little doubt about his thoughts on the matter, which I have to and do accept at face value. He provided some statistics in his response that shows that he has certainly given this some thought and probably has spoken about it at length in the past. I know fully well that at a certain stage and level of responsibility, when thousands, even millions of people can be impacted by the decisions you make, decisions that often have to be made without delay, that he could never be gone for extended periods. But I also know that most people at that level have already passed the stage in life of having little children, especially newborns, and that these are still personal decisions and that life still comes first. I don't know where exactly that line is between where someone like that sits and where I sit, where it becomes almost impossible to take your full leave, but I don't think I need to worry about that for at least the next several million dollars a year. Maybe when I'm that age or at that stage, I'll be able to give someone that same kind of advice that he gave me, or even better, because I intend to have lived it 
and I'm grateful for the opportunity and support today to be able to do just that. That CEO's response to my question felt unrushed and authentic, unrehearsed, but even if it was, that is what he chose to rehearse. I think it's also appropriate to acknowledge the privileged position that I, like many of you, are in. Parental leave for much of the world, even the so-called developed world, is lacking. It still varies wildly across industries and countries, and we have to acknowledge that certain professions and job types, and even economies, lend themselves to these benefits much more easily. This made me think of Maslow's hierarchy and how some people can more easily pursue self-actualization, while others remain stuck at the bottom of the pyramid as they struggle just to have food and clothing and a measure of safety. For people without support from their jobs and governments, imagine all the emotional trauma, relationship conflict, and issues around anger and guilt that could be avoided or significantly reduced with greater support for fathers and more commonly accepted ideas of men practicing self-care and being more aware of their own and their family's emotional needs. In reality, this applies to everybody. Now, I'm not a policy expert, a psychologist, or a government official, but if more companies and communities included topics like these in their discussions and public debates and normalized some of these solutions, we might see a notable uptick in the health of the family and community and a greater overall productivity. But we won't get there until more companies and governments map out the benefits to fathers, their eligibility for those benefits, and then encourage them to take them and facilitate ways for them to do so. We should all be encouraged to integrate smaller habits and disciplines around nights, weekends, or other family and personal time. This might be commitments to never miss a certain occasion, to journal or meditate daily, to fly home for your parents' anniversary, to set phone or email free times, or just to go for a walk. What's more, we should also have a personal exceptions process, which is a way to handle inevitable exceptions to our rule. This way, breaking the routine once doesn't turn into stopping altogether, which is what so often happens with resolutions of most kinds. How do we think about what led to the breakdown in our commitment? Kind of a root cause analysis. What do we have to do to make up for it? And to whom must we communicate? To whom have we communicated our commitment in the first place, which drives accountability? Have you considered establishing an accountability partner at work, since you probably already have at least one at home? It's only when we apply our commitment and discipline to all three pillars in our lives, and when men are expected and encouraged to find this kind of balance, and to take us seriously as we do our commitments in environments outside of the home and of ourselves, can we expect greater social adoption of ideas around equality and balance? It's only then that we will reap the benefits of more stable societies and organizations. This kind of change isn't easy and won't feel natural at first, but just imagine all that could happen if this is what we chose to rehearse. Executive Dad is community, but you can't have community without unity and you can't have unity without you.